Well, we are studying through the book of Zechariah. Just to remind you a little bit of what we covered last week. Zechariah was written, the book was written to the Jews who had returned from captivity in Babylon. And as we kind of noted last week, as we were studying through, Zechariah himself was part of that new generation, born back in the land, one of the first of that group that were born. We know that it was 19 years from the return from Babylon to the point that this book is written in 518 B.C., uh, just, just as a chronological uh, thing, you'll find some commentators will say 520 uh, BC, uh, and they date that because they go from 539, which is when Cyrus kind of moved into Babylon. But the decree to allow the Jews home wasn't for another two years. It was for 537 that they were allowed to return home. So if you see some commentaries and they'll say 520, it, they've, they've kind of done the, the 70 years maths and things right but they kind of got the wrong starting point. The captivity ended in 537 BC in Babylon. That's when Cyrus allows the Jews to return home. And so we get to that 70-year period of time, which was 19 years after. Now they've returned back into the land, and we come to the end of the desolations of Jerusalem. Those two periods of 70 years, one specifically to do with the people and one to do with the land. And of course, Haggai, as we already mentioned, comes onto the scene, one of the contemporaries of Zechariah. And he really stirs up the heart of the people to rebuild. They've been there for 19 years, nothing had happened. And then uh, Zerubbabel also, the governor. These were all people that were linked to family members who had been in these roles prior to them moving out. In fact, Zerubbabel, you find, was part of the royal line. He could have been king, but he never makes a play to be king. And the reason for that, of course, is because God had already said that Israel would abide many days without a king. And of course, it's not until the crown is brought back from Babylon some 500 years later, and these magi, these Babylonian um, priests, uh, this uh, priestly group that have responsibility for appointing kings, these magi travel to Jerusalem, and they go to the palace and ask Herod, where the rightful king of the Jews is. And so they effectively bring the crown back from Babylon. He went there with Zedekiah, and he stays there for the crown of Israel, and he comes back. And, of course, Jesus is the one who is the rightful king. Joshua was the high priest. He was a Levite. He was part of that line. His uh, father, grandfather had been in this role. Um, And so there's kind of this new generation that are now being raised up by the Lord to minister. But Zechariah particularly, as we said, you know, somewhere around about 17 years old at this point. So, so although we can't prove it, it seemed you know, very much the case that he was born back in the land, um, part of that, that new uh, group of young men, young women, that were starting to rebuild the nation. And it's through whom that, him that God speaks. Now, Haggai encouraged the people physically to rebuild the temple, the place of God's dwelling, Zechariah encourages the people to spiritually rebuild the place of God's dwelling. And it talks about their own lives. Now, interestingly, seven times in the New Testament, we're told that we are the temple of the Holy Spirit. God doesn't dwell in buildings made from hands. You read the end of Isaiah, Isaiah makes that point. You know, there isn't a house that you can build. Solomon said the same thing. We can't make a house that's big enough for God. God chooses to come and dwell in us. And as I say, seven times, interestingly, seven, that number that always seems to denote completeness. Seven times in the New Testament, we're told that we are the temple, the dwelling place of God. But Zechariah steps onto the scene and really encourages people to think about their relationship with God. And it's a, it's a great lesson for us today because the message was God is going to bring the Messiah. The Messiah is coming. Get ready. Well, what a great message for us, because we know that Jesus is coming back soon. And so for us, this is just as applicable, that we should be looking at this. And in a sense, this becomes a bit of a health check. Now, Zechariah begins with a series of eight, some say ten, doesn't really matter how you break them down, but uh, eight visions that all seem to have occurred in one night. 
So it's a pretty heavy night. You know, just, just these visions, one after another, after another. And they all seem to be connected. And they prophetically outline Israel's and world history from the time of Israel's return from Babylon to the first advent of the Messiah, the first coming of Jesus, to the second coming of the Messiah. And, and it gives us this unveiling of God's perspective of history, which is why this is fascinating. Now, we, of course, have got the benefit of hindsight of many of the things that Zechariah will allude to. He was looking forward. But as we hear this morning, we can look back and we've got history to show us exactly what these things really uh, refer to. Chapter 1, we have, of course, the introduction. We'll just look at it briefly again in a second. But we spent a few minutes at the end of last week just looking at that. And then the, the real... Uh, lesson that the teaching Zechariah brings to the people is don't repeat the mistakes of the past. The things that your fathers and grandfathers and so on, the mistakes they made, don't do the same things again. Look at the consequences. And then from chapter 1 through to chapter 6, we have this series of these eight visions. And we'll go through them all uh, over the coming weeks. We're just going to try and see if we can take the first two of those this morning in chapter 1. And then from the end of chapter 6 into chapter 8, we've got a bit of a historical interlude, and we see Joshua being crowned as the high priest. But there's a, a wonderful type, a picture there. Uh, these were real events, but they point to something other, something incredible that always speaks of Jesus. And then some of the Jews who were at Bethel inquire regarding the fast. They, they'd had these fasts set up while they were in Babylon. And the question now is, well, should we continue those things? And Zechariah gets under the skin of it and says, well, why do you want to do it in the first place? Why do you do what you do? It's, it's a call to get out of religion. So much of what so many do, even those who call themselves Christians, is nothing more than religion. Religion means nothing to God. It's relationship that matters. And just because you go to church every week, well, great. But what's the reason? Is it because you really love the Lord and you want to spend time with him, to sit at his feet, as it were, and to fellowship and encourage other believers? Or is it just something you do because you've always done it? And it's the same kind of question that Zechariah is going to really throw back at the people. And then seemingly much later in Zechariah's ministry, so he, as a young man, we have those visions. That's what we'll start by looking at. But much later in his ministry, we find that these two burdens are, are laid out. The first one is regarding the Messiah's first advent from chapters 9 through 11, and the second one regarding the second coming from chapters 12 through 14. And some incredible prophecies that are laid out in advance, and of course we'll go through those as and when we get there. Lord willing, if we're not raptured first, which is fine only if we are. Let's jump into the, the text then. Zechariah chapter 1, verse 1. And we looked at this last time. In the eighth month, in the second year of Darius, came the word of the Lord unto Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Idu the prophet, saying, and just to remind you what we looked at last week, these names are significant. Every detail in the Bible is there by deliberate supernatural design. Every number, every place name, every name, everything. Zechariah means whom Yahweh remembers. Bechariah uh, his dad means Yahweh blesses, and then Idu means the appointed time. You put that together, and it's whom Yahweh remembers, Yahweh blesses at the appointed time. And that really is the summary of the book. The whole book is really a summary of the fact that God has not forgotten his people Israel, and God will bless them at the appointed time. That's the summary. And what we're going to now get is all the detail of how God is going to do that. And so the message that Zechariah is called to bring first is to that the Lord has been sore displeased with your fathers. Therefore say thou unto them. Thus says, now this is not to your fathers, they've gone. They, they died, most of them would have died in Babylon by this point. So say unto them, it's the ones whose fathers has been referenced. So this is the new generation. Say thou unto them, thus says the Lord of hosts, turn ye unto me, saith the Lord of hosts, and I will turn unto you, saith the Lord of hosts. A couple of things to pull out of this. Firstly, again, say thou unto them. Say unto the children of the fathers, that new generation, as we said. And it's interesting that the Lord will often raise up someone with like experience to instruct those to whom he wants to speak. 
You know, sometimes we wonder why God puts us through the things he puts us through. But very often it's that the Lord would equip us so that we can then help someone else. And we can't see what's coming. We don't know what the Lord has ahead. If we did, we maybe would not find the trials quite so difficult. But with Zechariah, God is using this young man to go and speak to his contemporaries. And effectively saying, look, I'm in the same boat as you are. But God is saying to all of us now to put our trust in him. Turn to me, saith the Lord of hosts. Now notice this expression, thus saith the Lord of hosts. It's the Lord of Sabaoth is the actual uh, Hebrew here. It's 52 times that it occurs in this book, over 300 times in the Bible, this expression. Three times in this very verse itself, you can see there. And 18 times it will occur in chapter 8. Throughout this book, we see this constant reference. And really the idea is that which goes forth in regard to army or war, warfare or a host and so on. This is the God of heaven's armies. It's an incredible statement that, you know, therefore say thou unto them, the God who is in charge of the armies of heaven says, turn unto me. It's it's just an incredible thing because God could say, I'm in charge of the armies of heaven, so therefore you must turn unto me and I'm going to force you to do that. But God never does that. God's always gentle. God always draws us, never pushes us. Turn you unto me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will turn unto you. You see, that expression is interesting as well because... They are being asked the question, really, to take God seriously. Saying, you know, your fathers didn't take me seriously. Are you? Will you take me seriously? And the the challenge is going to be put to them, consider your fathers. Consider where their decisions led them. You know, if you are for God, God will be for you. Psalm 66, 18 reminds us, if we regard iniquity in our hearts, God will not hear us. But if we seek him, we'll be found of him. To turn to God, what does it mean? Well, it means to trust him. It's the verse that Amita read for us this morning from Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him. and He should direct your paths is to have no other gods before him. And that's hard because we always like to have a backup plan. And God wants us to put all our eggs in the one basket that is him. You see, in a worldly sense, that's probably never a good idea. But in a spiritual sense, there's nothing better than trusting God completely. And that's the challenge that Zechariah is bringing to these people. And he goes on and says, Be not as your fathers, unto whom the former prophets have cried, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Turn ye now from your evil ways and from your evil doings. But they did not hear, nor hearken unto me, saith the Lord. Jeremiah, Hosea, Amos, Isaiah, in fact, almost all the minor prophets, with the exception of a few, Nahum and and Jonah and so on, who preached to Nineveh. But almost all of the the prophets speak of the people's hearts being turned back to God, that call that goes to them. But particularly Jeremiah, we see so much in his writing, just calling people to, to turn to God, to avoid the judgment that would otherwise come. But of course the people were content to walk in their own path. They chose their own path, and rejected gods. They walked by sight and not by faith. Of course, we're called to walk by faith and not by sight, not by the things we see, not by the things we think we understand. And this statement, your fathers, where are they? And the prophets, do they live forever? Albert Barnes, in his commentary, says this. He says, the abrupt Solemnity of the question seems to imply an unexpected close of life which cuts short their hopes, plans, and promises to self. 
When they said peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them, quoting from 1 Thessalonians. The challenge here is consider your fathers, the ones that led the nation into captivity effectively. They disobeyed God, despite all the prophets coming and speaking to them. Look where that ended up. You know, throughout the Bible, we are continually reminded to consider the outcome of the path that we're on. Where will it lead us? Paul says in the book of Romans, to consider those things that have written, things that we're now ashamed of. And he says, was there any fruit in those things? And the answer, of course, is no, those things didn't bring us blessing. So why would we want to go down that road ever again? And yet that allure to do that is always there. And this is interesting because in verse 6 it says, But my words and my statutes, which I commanded my servants, the prophets, did they not take hold of your fathers? And they returned and said, Like as the Lord of hosts thought to do unto us according to our ways and according to our doings, so hath he dealt with us. This is acknowledgement here, again, a real solemn acknowledgement that God's word regarding judgment had come to pass. You know, God is not mocked. I just want to just go back because there's something I just missed and I want to just, just pick on it. And I think it's in verse 4. Yeah, it says, Be not as your fathers unto whom the former prophets have cried. And the, the idea that's being presented here is that consider just not just the prophets, but your fathers. Consider where their actions took them, but also consider the Lord sent his prophets. But, you know, there was a time when that stopped. The time of warning had come to an end. I think we're going to pick that up again in a moment. So let's just pick on, or let's just go into then what is now the first of these eight visions And this vision of a man on a red horse. We read this. Upon the four and twentieth day of the eleventh month, which is the month of Sabad in the second year of Darius. Now before I go on and read the rest of that verse, does anybody spot something there? Notice the date that is given. I've already said to you, and hopefully you're starting to to really understand that every detail is important. Upon the 24th day of the 11th month, why is that significant? The reason it's significant is exactly to the day, two months since the rebuilding of the temple began. The 24th day of the 9th month, and now the 24th day of the 11th month. Why? Is it just coincidence? Well, no, it's not coincidence. It's interesting when you look at this throughout history, the 24th of Kislev, or Chislu, depending how you translate the Hebrew into the English, they're their month of, uh, to typically coming in the autumn time, ninth month, September-ish in the English calendar. That was when the foundation of the second temple was laid. That day, the 24th, and we have that connection with the temple. But it was also on the 24th of the same month that we see the Abolition of the temple sacrifice by Antiochus Epiphanes in 168 BC. Again, 24th, specifically to do with the temple. And then the recapture of the temple a few years later, after Antiochus Epiphanes, and this leads to the Feast of Hanukkah. In fact, that follows, the Feast of Hanukkah follows on a few months afterwards, that's on the 25th of the month. It's the day after this celebration. But again, it's the 24th that that takes place. It was also the exact date that Jerusalem was freed from Ottoman rule in 1917, the 24th day. And as you go back, I'm sure you will find more of these examples, but every one of these seems to be linked to the temple in some way. God is consistent through history. And I just want you to be sensitive to this because next week, There's some staggering things that we're going to see that will come out of the third vision that we'll look at. I just want to, at this point, just take you through this because it is just utterly breathtaking. If you've never seen this before, you're about to be blessed. Remember that Peter goes up to Jesus in Matthew 18. And and there's that question, you know, how, how often should I forgive my brother? Should I forgive him seven times? 
And a lot of modern translations, I'm sorry to say it, but they absolutely mess it up completely. Some just even get the wrong numbers. And, you know, Jesus' response is, no, don't forgive until seven times, forgive until 70 times seven. Some modern translations say 70 times. And, and a lot of commentators will go, well, the idea was forgive a lot. Oh, is that really what Jesus was saying? No. Peter was a Jew. We know from the things he wrote, he understood the law. There was this principle of this seven times seven being 49, and then the 50th would be the year of Jubilee. In the year of Jubilee, all debts would be forgiven. And Peter goes up to Jesus and says, should I forgive up to, until, is exactly the word he uses, up till seven times. In other words, seven times seven up to the Jubilee. That was the Jewish mindset. It's a very proper question that Peter's asking Jesus. And Jesus says, no, don't forgive up until the Jubilee. He says, forgive until the 490. What's the 490? Why is that significant? Because of this. If we go from Abraham to the Exodus, we've got a period of 75 years from the time that the promise is given, plus the 430 years that we're given. That's a total of 505 years from Abraham to the Exodus. But, you know, during that period of time, there were 15 years where Ishmael was persecuting, effectively. It was, in a sense, where Abraham was out of the will of God. You know, the whole account with Ishmael, he'd kind of, decided to try and help God out, and it didn't go all that well. So if you take out that time when Abraham was walking his own path for a while, you're left with a period of 490 years. Okay, well, that's interesting. What do you do with that? Well, if we then go from the Exodus to the time of Solomon's temple, we're given the details in 1 Kings. We've got a period of 594 years, and then seven further years while the temple was being built. So when it was completed, we have a total of 601 years. But that, of course, includes the time of the judges. Now, if anybody's read the book of Judges, you'll know that it's a period where everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And for most most of the time, they were out of favor with God. God gave them over to their enemies to turn their hearts back to him. And you add up the, the details we're given from Judges chapter 3 to Judges chapter 13, we find we have a period of 111 years total where they were out of favor with God. Well, you do the maths, and once again, we have a period of 490 years. Now that starts to get a bit interesting. Well, then if we go from the time of the temple to the time of this edict that was given by this Persian king, Artaxerxes, Monogimonosis, in the book of Nehemiah chapter 2, we go from, 1 Kings 8 uh, gives us the, the, the details, but 1005 BC, which is from the temple being completed. So again, that, that edict by Artaxerxes, Nehemiah chapter 2, which is 445 BC. We've got a total of 560 years. But we all know that during this period of time, we have the Babylonian captivity, which was for how long? 70 years. So if we take 70 away from 560, we have 490 years again. God always seems to work with Israel in these spans of 490 years. And then we really get to the interesting one. And this is the one that Jesus, I believe, is alluding to in Matthew 18. Because if you go from Artaxerxes to the second coming of Jesus Christ, in the book of Daniel, we're given a very specific prophecy in chapter 9. From 445 BC, when that prophecy kicks in, when it starts, we're told that there's going to be a period of 483 years, and then the Messiah will come. It's very, very specific. But after that point, and Luke 19 tells us, Israel's eyes were blinded. They missed the first coming of Jesus. The Jews missed the first coming. And that leads to the church age. That's the time we're in now. Israel's eyes were blinded. How long are Israel's eyes blinded? until the fullness of the Gentiles become in. And then what will happen? Well, when the church is taken out of the world, it will begin a period of seven years 
which Jeremiah refers to as the time of Jacob's trouble. We refer to it as the time of tribulation that is coming upon the earth. So we've got this interval that we're in right now where Israel are effectively dispersed amongst the nations. They're out of favor with God because of the fact they rejected their Messiah and so on. And this blindness has been pronounced upon them. But when the Gentiles have been brought in, we get into this time of the tribulation, which we know will be seven years. Once again, we have 490 years, brings us to the second coming of Jesus Christ. So when Peter says, how long, how often, or until when should I forgive my brother? Jesus doesn't say until the jubilee, when all debts will be forgiven. He says, until the kingdom comes. Until Jesus returns and sets up his rule and authority. You see God's complete control over all of history. And we see it going back to this verse we are just looking at in Zechariah. The details there. These dates are all significant. And you'll see as we go into next week how so many of these things all dovetail and pull into each other. I just want to share that with you just so you start to get a flavor of some of the things we're going to be looking at as we go forward. But let's carry on with this vision there. So upon the 420th day of the 11th month, which is the month of Sibad, in the second year of Darius, came the word of the Lord unto Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, the son of Ida the prophet, saying, I saw by night, and behold, a man riding upon a red horse. And he stood among the myrtle trees that were in the bottom, and behind him were there red horses, speckled, and white. Who is this red horseman? Now, if you've read the book of Revelation, you'll know that we have four horsemen in chapter 6. And some try and link this to that, but this just seems to be very different. We just have a single horseman here, riding upon this red horse. Red, of course, is symbolic of war and bloodshed and so on. And we can all make that connection But we're going to find that in verse 11, we're actually told, there's no need to guess, that the rider on this horse is the angel of the Lord, or Yeshua, Jesus. But it's interesting that he's in the midst of these myrtle trees. Well, what's the myrtle trees about? Well, it's also sometimes referred to this uh, Hadasha shrub, or it's the Jewish uh, word from which we also get the name of Esther. But this is an indigenous shrub that grew all over Israel. It was also a popular name for Israel. So we have the Lord standing in the midst of the nation of Israel. Interestingly as well, that the myrtle trees also featured in the constructing of the booths for the Feast of Tabernacles, which is fascinating. They were to commemorate their journeys in the wilderness, and the wandering in the wilderness, by having this Feast of Tabernacles. When they would build these booths and they would kind of camp out and they stay in these houses, and there was typically four different types of branches they would use to do it, but the myrtle was one of those that they did. Interesting once again, the Feast of Tabernacles, many believers believe that will be the point that Jesus returns, the second coming will be on the Feast of Tabernacles. Not, can't make an you know, absolute statement of that fact, but it's quite possible. Because we see how consistent these things are. But the idea of tabernacle, God dwelling amongst his people, links again into the temple. The temple was the place of God's presence, just as now our lives are the place of God's presence. And this first vision, again, on the 24th day, and it all has to do with God dwelling in the midst of his people. Interesting. Just as an aside, in the book of Revelation, we find we have 24 elders, seemingly representative of the church, whom God dwells in the midst of. That 24 seems to have this connection with God dwelling with his people. Again, the idea of the myrtle trees and the Feast of Tabernacles is also suggestive of the millennium when Christ will tabernacle on earth among his people. Okay, so what are we... Deduce, what do we understand from this vision of this rider on this red horse? Well, we've got Jesus standing in the midst of Israel. And then we're told something strange, in the bottom. Well, what does that mean? It's, it's a bit clunky in the English, the way we translated it. Chuck Misler puts it this way. He was located in the hollow. That's really what the Hebrew says, in a deep place. And Chuck says, this was a low time in the nation's history, a period of deep humiliation, the times of the Gentiles. So we have the Messiah, Jesus, standing in the midst of Israel 
in one of their great times of need. And notice behind Jesus, there's an army. I don't know, looking at the Hebrew, I can't deduce and looking at the commentators, none of them are particularly clear. Do we have red horses, speckled horses, and white horses? Is it it a huge layer upon layer type of thing? Maybe. It's an army, whatever way we look at this. A heavenly army. Or is it that we've got red horses and the wording that's for speckled is also bright red, is the implication. And then white. So is it saying that we've got these red horses, bright red, blinding to the sight? It just makes me think of that account that we have with Elisha, when his servants there, and the, 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 of course the Syrian armies come down, and his uh, servants saying, well, "What are we going to do?" And he says, "Don't worry, you know, they that with us are more." And his servants looking out, going, "Really? <laughs> There's just two of us." And then Elisha prays, the Lord would open his eyes, and his eyes are open. He suddenly sees on the hills all around these chariots of fire that the the armies of the Lord are there. We don't see with our natural eyes the spiritual realm. If we did, it would dramatically change the way we walk every day. You know, we are on the the winning side. We have, we were singing this morning, but we're going to see a victory. If you could just for a moment get a glimpse, like Elisha's servant got a glimpse, of what is going on in the spiritual realm, what the Lord is doing for you right now, the army that is behind you that you can't see, you would walk out in boldness and complete confidence. But getting back into the text here, this army are there, obviously with the Messiah, with Jesus. And then said I, O Lord, O my Lord, what are these? Great questions, Zechariah. And we're thankful for the prophets for asking these kind of questions. And the angel that talked with me, this is another angel that's there. Every one of these are visions. We have an angel that is liaising and speaking with Zechariah, and the angel that talked with me said unto me, I will show thee what these be. And the man that stood among the myrtle trees, interesting, isn't it? This is the Old Testament, and it says that the man that stood among the myrtle trees answered and said, These are they whom the Lord has sent to walk to and fro through the earth. And they answered the angel of the Lord, now here we go, that stood among the myrtle trees, So this one that's standing there, this rider on the red horse, we clearly identified in verse 11 as the angel of the Lord. That's a title that occurs a number of times in the Old Testament. Always it's a pre-incarnate appearance of Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the second person of the Trinity. But notice again verse 10. These are they whom the Lord has sent to walk to and fro throughout the earth. That's an expression you may recall from 2 Chronicles. It says there, for the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong in behalf of those whose heart is perfect toward him. It's the same idea. God is sending this army out to go to and fro throughout the whole earth to look, to observe. And again, verse 7, And they answered the angel of the Lord that stood among the myrtle trees and said, We have walked to and fro throughout the earth, and behold, all the earth sitteth still and is at rest. Now, we might read that straight off and think, Oh, that's nice, isn't it? We we all like sitting down and having a rest. And this isn't what it's saying. This is not a good thing. This is the Lord's survey of the earth. And this heavenly army has been sent out to survey the earth. How different would the world be if it had any concept that this has happened and is happening? But what they find in surveying the earth is disturbing. The world is resting. Or another way of putting this in the context, the world is indifferent to Israel's plight. The idea is resting carelessly, without regard in false security, arrogantly confident, boastful, saying, peace, peace, as Jeremiah 8.11 says, and then Paul to the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians 5 uses that same expression. The world is sitting there thinking, we're fine. You can almost imagine the picture of the world sitting back on a couch being fed grapes thinking, this is wonderful. They have no concept of what is coming. The world doesn't know that it's about to enter a time unlike any other. 
that time of judgment that is to come. Just as Israel had gone into this time of judgment with the, the Babylonian captivity, so now Zechariah has been given this vision to say, no, the Lord is watching. He's been keeping an eye on everything that's going on. He's not ignorant of what's happened to you. And we go on, verse 12, Then the angel of the Lord answered and said, O Lord of hosts, that expression again, how long will thou not have mercy on Jerusalem? Just look at the conversation that's taking place and to whom this conversation is. Then the angel of the Lord, which is Jesus Christ, answered and said, O Lord of hosts. So we have the Trinity, or two parts of the Trinity here, in dialogue. We see this in Psalm 2 and other places in the Bible. Jesus actually used this uh, to try and trip the Pharisees up at one point. The Lord said unto my Lord, and, and to kind of asked the Pharisees, well, who was David referring to, and so on. Now we have God speaking, kind of an internal conversation here. The angel of the Lord answered and said, O Lord of hosts, how long will thou not have mercy on Jerusalem and on the cities of Judah? against which thou hast had indignation these three score and ten years. In other words, God was right to bring judgment. They've had these 70 years of captivity. They've come back into their land. Now the question that's being asked is, okay, Lord, how much longer is this going to go on? How much longer will Israel have to endure these things? So again, note this conversation between the son and the father, and then note also the question, and really this is goodbye or should be good riddance for the idea of replacement theology. Because this is the second person of the Trinity saying, how long until it's all over, until Jerusalem has peace? That's the question that's being asked. And sadly, so much of the church in this country and around the world has got the idea brought in from the Roman Catholic Church, propagated by the Anglican Church and by most of the denominational churches, that God has finished with Israel. Nothing could be further from the truth. And here you have a clear verse. The question, how long will thou not have mercy on Jerusalem and on the cities of Judah? And verse 13, the answer, And the Lord answered the angel that talked with me with good words and comfortable words. What a great response. Zechariah is kind of first-hand getting this. And the response comes, and it's good, and it's comfortable. So the question, what about Israel? What about Jerusalem? The problems that that nation has endured. Well, there's an end in sight. So the angel that communed with me said unto me, Cry thou, saying, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I am jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion with a great jealousy. That's not something that God just pushes to one side. God chose Abraham and promised him that all the nations of the earth will be blessed through him. Jesus came into this world, into a Jewish family. According to the flesh, Jesus was a Jew. Jesus will one day judge the nations of this world depending on how they have treated his brethren. Again, I am jealous for Jerusalem, God says, and for Zion with a great jealousy. This is God himself saying these things. And notice verse 15, and I am very sore displeased with the heathen. No, I'm not happy. You know what it's like when, when you know, children do something wrong and, and you, kind of, you, you scale it up depending on what they've done. If it's just a little thing, it's like, well, that wasn't very good, was it? You know, and you do that kind of, you call them by their, kind of their, their first name. They don't really know to use the whole name, don't you? including their surname, and then they know they're really in trouble. And you say, I am really cross with you. And then you get to that really, I'm really very, very cross. And sometimes you're like, come here, sit down, look at me. I mean, we don't do this. You know who you have. My girls are wonderful. We never have to do this at all with them. But this is God doing that very same thing. He says, I am very sore displeased with the heathen. God is really making this very clear. This isn't a trivial issue. This isn't something that's going to be forgotten. Remember, this angelic army's gone around the world to, to, according to the world, to look and see where things are at. 
And the responses come back, well, they're just sitting down. They don't care. They're not bothered. They don't care about God. They don't care about spiritual things. They don't care about God's justice, God's judgment. They don't care about Israel. They're just doing whatever they want, and they're just laying there in comfort and, and arrogantly thinking that everything's okay. So God says, very so displeased with the heathen that are at ease. For I was but a little displeased, and they helped forward the affliction. In other words, God says, I was displeased with Israel, a little displeased. They had disobeyed me. They had not kept the Sabbath. That's why for 70 years they spend this time in Babylon. God says, no, I was a little displeased. And yes, I used Assyria and I used Babylon to bring judgment upon them, to teach them, to bring them back to me, just as he used the likes of Moab and Edom and these other nations surrounding Israel during the times of the judges to bring the hearts of the people back to him. So often in affliction we turn to the Lord. David cries out a number of times, you know, unless I was afflicted, I would have gone astray, but now I keep thy word. Psalm 119. Now, afflictions are good things sometimes. It just helps to pull us back in line. And God says, you know, I allowed Israel to go through these things. I was a little displeased. But the world, oh, they've taken this far too far. They helped forward the affliction. They've gone way beyond their remit. And they've treated Israel in a way that I never instructed them, I never intended them to do. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I am returned to Jerusalem with mercies. My house shall be built in it, saith the Lord of hosts, and a line shall be stretched forth upon Jerusalem. More about that line next week. Verse 17, cry yet, saying, thus saith the Lord of hosts, my cities through prosperity shall yet be spread abroad. And the Lord shall yet comfort Zion and shall yet choose Jerusalem. Anybody that wants to hold on to replacement theology after those verses, really, you need your head looking at because this is so clear. God is saying, I've not given up on Israel. I will bring blessing upon them. Prosperity, yet comfort them and choose Jerusalem. Okay, so four specific things that are said. Firstly, the Messiah will come to Jerusalem. It's the glory of the Lord that Shekinah had departed from the Holy of Holies. He'd gone to the porch of the temple, to the eastern gate, finding the Mount of Olives, and then ascended up to heaven. We read about it in Ezekiel chapter 10. But the glory of the Lord is going to return. The Messiah is going to come to Jerusalem. The second thing we're told in those verses we just read is that my house shall be built in Jerusalem. That's not the temple that is about to be built. There will be a temple built any day now in Jerusalem. But that'll be a temple that Antichrist himself will put his own image in. God's not going to use that one. There'll be another one, a fourth temple that the Messiah will build or have built when he returns in Jerusalem. The third thing is that Jerusalem's boundaries would expand. You know, if you look at the land that was promised to Abraham, It was to be effectively from Egypt all the way through to the Euphrates River. The world today talks so much about the West Bank. They just have the wrong river. They talk about the Jordan, but really the one they should be talking about is the Euphrates because that is the land that God had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And all of Israel's enemies round about today are still challenging the land that Israel have. You know, you only have to look through history and see what was promised to the Jews that would be given back to them. And this country and France and so on renege on the agreements and the promises we've made. And Israel were given only a small fraction of the land they've been promised. But, you know, the world's promises don't really matter. What matters is God's promise because that will always be kept. And then we're told again in these verses that God will once again choose Jerusalem. Really clear statements. Notice the Messiah is coming where? Not to London, not to New York, not to Paris. Not to Berlin, not to any place in Europe or the Western world or anywhere else in the world for that matter. He's coming to Jerusalem. That's where the house is going to be built, which will be a glory to Israel and an honor to God. And Jerusalem's boundaries are going to be expanded and God will once again choose Jerusalem. This is the promise that is given to Zechariah to tell the people. You remember where this started at the beginning? God is saying, please choose me. 
Do you know, I come home from work and I go to my children. I'll take Shreya for example. And I say, Shreya, have you been a good girl today? And I so wanted to say yes, so I can give her a great big hug. You know, there's nothing harder as a parent than coming home and finding that one of your children has not been good because you can't just go and give them that hug that you want to go and give them. But this is what God is saying to to Israel at the beginning of the chapter, choose me because I want to bless you more than you can possibly know. And you know the same applies to every one of us. God is saying choose him. Walk in his way. Trust him with your whole heart. Because he wants to bless you more than you could possibly know. Sometimes we forfeit some of those blessings because we don't trust God as we should. Just a couple of verses to finish the chapter. So this now seems to be the second vision. Again, however you divide, it doesn't really matter. But then lifted I up my eyes and saw and behold four horns. Now, the reason I just want to finish with this is because it links so much into what we've just seen. And I said unto the angel that talked with me, what be these? And he answered me, these are the horns which have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. Well, without anything else, we can start to do a little bit of deduction here and fill in the blanks. But horns are idiomatic of strength and power throughout the Bible when we find them used in various ways. It's typically that of a kingdom. So the idea seems to be that we've got these horns, these kingdoms, these world powers, which have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. And numerically, four denotes this world. The way it's used in Scripture, four always seems to have some connection with this world. We've got the four winds, we've got the four points of the compass, we've got the four seasons, and so on. Even our own mindset, you know, four often, you know, we can understand that in regards to the world. So... It's speaking very much of this world and what this world has done to Judah, Israel, Jerusalem. Now, interestingly, from this point historically, we know that we had the Medo-Persian Empire, the Greek Empire, the Roman Empire, which kind of just fizzled out. And then biblically, the next world empire to follow will be what some people refer to as the revived Roman Empire. But it will be this empire of ten kings that will rule the world under Antichrist. Antichrist will subdue three of them. But this this coming world empire, this one world government that some people have talked about for years, and it's getting closer and closer and closer. And even with the things that are going on in Ukraine, how it's pulling together the world in ways that we couldn't have probably imagined even 20, 30, 40 years ago. The world is getting closer and closer, getting ready for these things. So maybe the four horns here are representative of these four empires, and that may well be the case, and it certainly fits if that is. But it could just simply be that the the number four is used here in that expression, same as seven often refers to complete. Four has this idea of the world. But whatever the way, the text makes it clear, these are the horns which are scattered Judah, Jerusalem, or Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. So we ask the question, who is it that has scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem? Well, it's the kingdoms of this world. Whichever way you go, you come back to the same conclusion, that it's the kingdoms of this world, and of course, Medo Persia were partly involved in that, Certainly Greece, Rome, absolutely. And then pretty much every one that's had a a crack at power since the Roman Empire divided up, every part of the Roman Empire has had some day in the, the spotlight. They've all been responsible for scattering Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. So we we now see these four horns. Again, speaking seemingly of the world governments, world empires that have scattered Judah, Jerusalem. And then it says, verse 20, And the Lord showed me four carpenters. Then said I, What come these to do? And he spoke, saying, These are the the horns which have scattered Judah, so that no man did lift up his head. In other words, nobody stopped it. Nobody intervened. But these are come, as in the four carpenters that he's speaking of now, to fray them, to cast out the horns of the Gentiles, which lifted up their horn over the land of Judah to scatter it. So who are these carpenters? Clearly what's going to happen is 
that we know historically that Israel has been scattered around the world. It's been the empires of the world that have done that. And that God is saying that four carpenters, whatever they are, whoever they are, are going to come and they are going to bring judgment, fray them, cast out the horns of the Gentiles. Again, to fulfill those promises we just looked at a moment ago where God will choose Jerusalem. God will bring his people back and establish them in their land. The idea of the carpenters here, it's an artisan, it's a skilled tradesman. It doesn't necessarily have to be carpenters, but that's the kind of idea certainly that's portrayed. Now, it might be here a reference to the fourfold revelation of Jesus because four again, in this context, it may have this idea of the world, but it's interesting, I, I just throw this out there, that we find Jesus presented in this fourfold way. When we look at the Gospels, just go through this, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, they all present Jesus in a slightly different way. Matthew presents Jesus as the Messiah, the King. Mark presents Jesus as a servant. Luke presents Jesus as the Son of Man. And John presents Jesus as the Son of God. It's really interesting. You just see that come through their writings. What's also interesting is when we look at the camp of Israel, as they camped in the desert, now they'd have camped around the tabernacle. And if you look at the numbers that camped on each side, as they were camped, that's what you'd have seen from the air. That's what Balaam would have seen, which is fascinating. It just happens to be across by coincidence, you know. But Judah were the leader of the group of three tribes on their side of the tabernacle. And the ends of the sign that they had, their banner, if you like, was that of a lion. Reuben, the leader of the group of the other three, their banner was an ox. Ephraim, again, the leader of the three tribes on their side, the banner, tribal standard, was that of a man. And then Dan, the leader of the group of three on his side, well, the tribal standard was an eagle. Well, they're the same as the faces of the cherubim. Okay, you've got the four faces in Revelation 4 and 7, Ezekiel and so on. But once again, we see a great representation of Jesus. Matthew presents Jesus as the lion. Mark presents Jesus as the servant, an ox. Luke presents Jesus as the son of man, and John presents Jesus as the son of God, an eagle soaring above. It's fascinating that all these things, all linking to Jesus, there is a connection with four in regard to world empires, but there's also a connection with four in regard to Jesus. Interestingly, if you look at the names, praise, fruitful, affliction, and judged, all of those apply to Jesus. Of course, he was judged for us. But whatever way, whoever these four are, whether they're four angelic powers or whether it is speaking of Jesus in some way, Because we know from what Daniel says that when Jesus returns, he will bring judgment upon the nations of this world. They will, he will be, they will be frayed. They'll be cast out. Those that have, of the Gentiles that have afflicted Israel. That's the starting point for everything else that's going to come in these following visions. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we thank you this morning for this opportunity just to start to look at these things. Oh, Father, what is really clear is that you have worked throughout history in regard to your people Israel, that you have had a plan from the beginning for them and that you will bring them back into their land, that Jesus, you will return, that you will set your feet upon the Mount of Olives, that you will choose Jerusalem and you will rule the world from Jerusalem, from Mount Zion. And Lord, we thank you that though the world is sleeping, Although the world seemingly is at rest, but Lord, you are aware of all of these things. Nothing has escaped you. And you are a God of justice and judgment. Lord, we thank you that we can look at these things and that we can be encouraged that you are in complete control. And that applies to our own lives too. So help us, Lord, as we go through this week to trust you like we've never trusted you before. To turn our eyes upon Jesus, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.